Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and so grateful to have a place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting, accomplished folks of goodwill in good faith. And if you appreciate what we're doing here, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash politics and religion. Going forward, we'll be offering all kinds of exclusive content for our Patreon subscribers. And we sure do appreciate it. Your support on Patreon will help us continue to have conversations like the one we're having today with someone who's become a friend, Lori Adams Brown. Lori is a combination of international speaker, business executive, podcaster, and relief and development expert. She hosts a really terrific podcast called A World of Difference. Uh, I'm a big fan and listen to it all the time. It celebrates humanity's unique differences and encouraging us all to make a difference around the world. Since growing up in international schools in Costa Rica and Venezuela, Lori spent her career working in Indonesia, Singapore, and the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm wondering if San Francisco, you had the hardest time learning language there. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, She worked in disaster relief in the 2004 Indonesian tsunami, where she consulted with the UN coordination efforts, and she has spoken to audiences all over the US and all around the world. Lori also speaks six languages, that's what I was alluding to before, and brings a rare multicultural perspective to all her work. Lori, it's really cool to see you. How are you doing? Hey, I'm great. We haven't seen each other in person in real life since Santa Cruz, and we had Thai food with your family. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That was a fun a fun evening. And yeah. uh, Emerson and Lisa really enjoyed it. Lisa is like, she's she's like, she wants to go to fight with you. The, the Alabama in her has come out. But we'll, <laughs> we'll talk about uh, why that all is. We're going to yep. we're going to get into a, a sensitive subject, but I, I wanted to get a little bit of background first. So for those who aren't familiar with what it's like being a kid in a missionary family, can, can you give us a little background on what life was like for you growing up? Yes. I mean, there's a lot of variety out there, I'd say, when it comes to, we call it MK, missionary kid, but it's also a third culture kid or a TCK experience, which missionary kids would share with army brats and expat kids of all types around the world from all different nationalities and passport countries is what we say. For me, you know, I wasn't one of those jungle missionary families. I I was raised in an urban environment in Venezuela, which is Caribbean and South America. So all that combined and it was a wonderful experience. I grew up, like I said, in you said in the introduction, I was in international schools. So I had friends from all over the world and their dads were usually working for these multinational companies. I was in the industrial city of our nation. And then I also grew up, so that kind of, in a way, upper crust expat life um, was my kind of weekday life. And then on the weekends, I was mostly in the little small church plants my parents were a part of and then helping to volunteer in medical clinics. My mom started to help some of the 
internally displaced peoples that were coming into Venezuela from Colombia at the time. So I grew up translating for medical doctors. These very, <laughs> you know what doctors are like. I grew up translating for these doctors from the States who would come in for these medical clinics, just this little shrimpy girl. And, uh, <laughs> but learned a lot, learned a lot during that time. And uh, still to this day, I have just great friendships from my time growing up in Venezuela. And they taught me such a great deal about faith. It was just a great place to have spiritual formation and and learn how, what a big God God is in all kinds of circumstances. So grateful for it. And then uh, as you got into your adult life and started your family with Jason, you guys were continued those international efforts and in, in the mission field. Yeah. I mean, some people are like, is it the family business? But yeah. <laughs> I think it kind of works that way for those of us who are people of faith. We definitely had to have our own particular callings, which I wouldn't say Jason and I really had until, um, we were adults ourselves and both of us in college before we had met one another had a an experience where we both sensed very strongly that this was a direction God was leading us in. So the circumstances under which I met my husband was at a Baptist Campus Ministries convention, which is super boring. <laughs> but <laughs> it's how God worked to bring us together. But we were both planning on going to Southeast Asia. I was very narrow in Indonesia at that point and was about to go for the first time. And so it was my student minister at Samford University in Birmingham that knew my husband. He had done some summer mission stuff and she'd done his interviews and said, these two should meet. So we had a little matchmaker moment. And it turns out we were both planning to go to Southeast Asia one day and both of us had our sights set on doing the same master's program in California. So we had a very similar background and very similar future and in ways only God can bring two people together. It really worked. So that's interesting. So remind me what your, you did a lot of schooling, like undergrad, graduate work. Remind me what your, uh, what you studied in school and then uh, in your graduate work. Yeah. So I did a double major, Spanish and sociology. Sociology was really fascinating. I had a one of my best professors was Dr. Penny Marler, and she taught me the sociology of religion class, which really has impacted me until this day. I took social theory with her as well. Just an incredible woman. Um, and then went on to do a master's in intercultural studies in Mill Valley, California, north of the Golden Gate Bridge. And just during that time had an experience of, as a student, being able to help with a church plant in San Francisco, which had a lot of diversity and also helped start a ministry at San Francisco State University, helping international students to have conversation partners and learn English. So it was just a lot of learning in addition to the program I was in and then got to go to Indonesia twice to lead some teams to do some work in Sumatra. So do you find yourself putting on your sociology goggles now trying to understand cultures and subcultures, not just around the world, but even here domestically, like just trying to understand what drives this peop these, you know, a group of people? You know, honestly, I don't think I ever take them off. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, there's um, it's one of those degrees that it's it just becomes who you are. And I think I naturally went into it having been a third culture kid. And so one of the fascinating parts about that degree program for me were the other students. So it, I don't know how it is nowadays, but at least in the 90s when I was studying sociology, I would look around my classes and we were all somewhat marginalized people. Now I say that sounds a little bit strange because I'm a white girl, right, at the time. But, and in Birmingham, Alabama, a lot of my fellow classmates in sociology were black, black Americans. And I learned a great deal about um, the civil rights movement through their perspective, because our classes were often very interactive and we could talk about how race was playing out in Birmingham in the 90s, which was very, very shocking 
for somebody who had come from overseas in Venezuela international schools to have learned about that in my textbooks and then to have people in real life helping me understand how that was going at the time. And obviously all these years later is sadly not a lot has changed in some ways, but I definitely don't take them off. So here in Silicon Valley, obviously it's got people from all over the world, a lot of South Asians. I have a lot of Singaporean friends here, Indonesian friends, Venezuelans, and it's just this beautiful diversity that I love so much. But I definitely feel like people, at least what we were understanding at the time in our sociology classes is that when you grow up in an underrepresented community and are marginalized in some way, you automatically are seeing society from the outside and so I think that that third culture experience for me gave me that lens growing up. And I find it, it's a real gift to be able to do that. And I think that even to a certain degree, as a woman, you have it wherever you go. Most of the world is patriarchy, I would say. And so there's always this element of being a woman where you're a little bit on the outside, whether a woman in faith-based spaces or a woman in business and tech, there's just always that moment where you're just like, okay, I'm not quite fully included. So I'm seeing it a little bit from the outside. So I think that lens is kind of always there. That's interesting because you have been a relative outsider for a good chunk of your life, but here domestically, you, you could be seen as in one of the privileged groups. But I was going to ask you this. I, I don't mean to just kind of whiz by that. Uh, no, it's fine. Go wherever you want to go. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, so I was going to ask you about this a little bit later. But since you bring it up at several points in your career, I saw your involvement in diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives, including with LGBTQ folks. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious about this experience on several levels. One is how does how does someone get good training it, just in order to be an effective advocate uh, for diversity within organizations? But the other is there's a lot of companies and churches, especially prior to 2020, that just didn't see the need for it. Uh, they didn't see the imperative. So how? So tell me about how one gets good training, but also how do you make that case internally that diversity, equity, inclusion is in fact imperative? Yes, it's, it's a huge challenge. So um, I, my first step I would always say is just listen. And it's really just the most basic thing. I, you know, was certified in the Stephen Covey's seven habits of highly effective people early on in my career in Indonesia. And I think some of those principles remain the same, like first seek to understand and then to be understood. And I think the more centered your perspective is for me now as a white person in America, for sure, um, I have to do an even better job of listening. And I would say as much as possible to try to diversify your own friend group or people you hang around. That can be really hard for some people. I think extroverts, it's just somewhat easier for us. But um, for all of us, you can read books by or listen to podcasts by or watch movies that center a protagonist that's very different from who you are. And I, I have a little thing on my website that people can download and it's not that, you know, it's not some genius thing, but it's just putting little demographics um, on a chart and then saying, oh, do I know anybody in this category that I listen to their perspective, however that looks? And it can feel a bit like a checklist, but the reality is I think most of us tend to, because that's human nature, be around people who are just like us. That echo chamber is something we naturally gravitate toward and you have to fight to go against that tide, which takes a lot of effort to swim against and a lot of intentionality. So I think that's sort of where you start, but there's some great 
leaders, especially in tech, I see a lot of people around the diversity, equity, inclusion on LinkedIn. I follow quite a few thought leaders in that area. Some of it I know is still kind of level one and very surfacey, but there are some great leaders out there that have written books and are do, have podcasts and are teaching people every day how to handle in real time events that are going on and the perspective taking part of that. And I, I think the second part for me is, you know, there's a lot of history for white people in particular, which would be my ancestors that were colonialists and they went around colonizing the world in some really awful ways. Now it wasn't all bad, like most things, it's a mixed bag. There was good and there was bad. If it was all bad, we would just get rid of it right away, right? That's the hard part. But, and I think in, when we're talking about missions, there's been a lot of that, especially here in California, you know, what um, we read about ha what happened with the Spaniards and the, the different missions that were established here, there was good and there was bad. And so we have to be really careful Number one, my church history professor and my master's degree would always say, we can't fully judge history with the perspective of today because we didn't have that perspective back then. So we do need to be careful. And I always hold that very carefully. But at the same time, in 2022, with what we know, we need to do a better job of trying to decolonize ourselves and also understand that that means really perspective taking. And so one of the lessons I learned growing up, because I did grow up around some really great people, and my parents aren't perfect, but they're amazing people. And they really taught me a value of cultural humility. And I would say that's really important that no one's culture is better than someone else's. So we learned this. I learned it as a child. So did my husband who grew up in India and Thailand. And then as somebody who was arriving in Indonesia, that was a lot of our training was that the way they do things is just different. It's not always right or wrong. Are there things in cultures that are systemically wrong? Well, yeah, but really it's not our place as outsiders within the first few years of being in a place to even be in a position to judge that because we don't really understand it. Mostly the way they live, it works for them and it's just different. It doesn't mean you're superior because you do things a certain way. And so I've held that value of cultural humili humility since I was a child and being raised in international school was sort of the air we all breathe. So it's a, I would say those two things, listening, however that looks for you, and then just practicing cultural humility. Cultural humility, that's a great counterbalance to, I was discussing this with um, Dr. Paul Miller last week, and he wrote a book about Christian nationalism, and he named something that I felt basically since I became a Christian, but didn't have exactly the right word, and, and it was sort of, uh, he called it Christian chauvinism. Um, mm. The posture of thinking, well, we have the, you know, we sort of own the right, you know, we own uh, the right answers, you know, and because we own everything uh, that is correct and right, therefore, you know, go from there. It's a, but uh, it's, I'm not articulating it well, but that, that term chauvinism, Christian chauvinism is what I experienced and ran up against a number of times. Um, but your concept of cultural humility uh, is blessed. <laughs> so thanks for uh, thanks for sharing that. So just out of curiosity, not to be a rabble rouser here, but I noticed that you were affiliated with uh, Southern Baptist, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention or churches that you've been involved with. Do mm -hmm. you could still consider yourself part of the SBC or uh, identify with the SBC or how, how do you, especially with what's been happening over the last couple of years, how, how do you feel about that? 
Yeah, good question. It's funny because I also just had Dr. Paul Miller on a couple weeks ago, and he oh, also right. was Southern Baptist. Yeah, exactly. I listened to the interview when I prepared for mine. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> oh, I'm glad he could help. Yeah, yeah he's uh, such a great thought leader around this, and who knew Christian nationalism was going to blow up the way that it did as soon as this book came out? So it was great. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he grew up Southern Baptist too, so I was sort of talking about this. I do not identify as Southern Baptist anymore, and that's uh, it's a painful thing to say because. I was raised, you know, for 45 years for the most part in that world. Although when I say Southern Baptist, I'm talking way South, South America, yeah. <laughs> right? So, yeah. but it, so it definitely was very different in the churches I grew up in, which wouldn't label themselves as Southern Baptist, just, you know, Bautista is what we called it. And, but um, being, you know, part of a Southern Baptist missionary family and then went to Southern Baptist University and seminary and it, you know, got full scholarships for my entire education. So came out debt free from all of it, which is significant. And then, you know, worked for 20 years and married to Southern Baptist MK and then worked for 20 years with them. I have just incredible relationships. Some of the best people I know are Southern Baptist, um, friends with people who've been convention presidents and, you know, pastored large churches, written some of the books, just the, and the people I knew in, in Indonesia and Singapore, all around Southeast Asia and grew up with in Venezuela, just incredible people. But I think that for me personally, some of the things that have happened in the last couple of years, just the systems are producing what they were intended to produce. And I think changing it has been so slow. And at the point I'm at in my life, I wanted to put my efforts into something for the next, you know, whatever years I have left that felt like from the core of it was really going to be a healthier posture. And that's a hard thing for me to say, because it's once again, I think I mentioned before, when something's all bad, it's so much easier to see. But when it's a mixture of good and bad, our brains don't quite know what to do with it. That cognitive dissonance is very uncomfortable. And we tend to want to choose one or the other. And I think in Christianity in particular, we often, especially my experience in North American churches, I would say this was not true of my upbringing in South America or even what I faced in Southeast Asia, but I would say definitely in white evangelical church in the United States, a lot of the limited experience I have there is we prefer the joyous, happy verses and that part of our, our we just feels better to say this is all good and it's fine and it'll all work out and God's in control and all those things are true. But when we fail to lament, which is such a significant part of the Psalms and a part of my formation, I grew up singing little coritos in Venezuela in Spanish. So many of them were these verse, these Psalms of God's power in very difficult circumstances because everybody I was growing up around was in very difficult circumstances. My best friend died when we were both 12 and she died of malnutrition. We would sit mm. under the mango tree for our Sunday school class and her name was Daisy and she loved the Lord and she knew all the answers in class and she was just a beautiful person. But there was hard things when I was growing up. And so the Psalms meant something and we lamented things, but we could also have joy. And so that's part of, I think, what's hard in the, what's happened sometimes in the U.S. version of the Southern Baptist churches as we want to say, oh, all this abuse happened, but he's still a good guy and he's still a good preacher and look at the fruit. Or maybe it's all okay. He went away for a month and now he's sorry and he spent time with God and now he's going to be fine. 
because our brains was we would prefer to say that but that the reality is not holding people accountable the way i understand scripture is not at all what god intended bringing darkness to light is a theme throughout scripture and we see jesus flipping tables in the temple for a reason in the house of worship where he was raised he was upset with those religious leaders it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations and you've made it a den of thieves a den is a place where you harbor and give safe harbor to something and if it's thieves that we're giving harbor to in our religious spaces that's that's significant and so yeah, I just think it got to the point for me personally where I didn't want to be affiliated with it any longer. Now that what it doesn't mean is that I don't still have friends and still go into those spaces because there are lovely people there. But it just means overall I've stepped out of it as um, something I identify with and and work with. So. Welcome to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. I'm Wajahat Ali. And my God is 2022 starting off with a banger. And Democracy-ish is going to be here to be your official guide out of the gaslight and the crazy. We will try our best to navigate this hellscape as our freedoms and democracy under active assault. We will take you through the gauntlet with humor and hope and frustration and pain and allow you not to be gaslit. That is your new Democracy-ish. It's interesting that you bring some of what you bring up. We're going to talk quite a bit more about, but I was reading um, how Saddleback is dealing with their current pastor situation, and we'll talk about this more. But one thing that occurred to me as someone who's been around some of the greatest marketers in the world, some of my good buddies are the guys who run marketing for Warner Brothers and Universal and Paramount Pictures, and um, they would be in awe of the black belt level of marketing and PR that's being done in the part of. Uh, the church and the pickle that they're in right now. Uh, again, the pickle, maybe that's not even the right <laughs> word to use, but you you know what I mean? Yeah. I do want to get into that, but I, I also, there was another chapter in your career as a preface to um, your your experience with with Echo Church that I want to bring up because it's, it's important to understand a little, just a little bit more about your background. So I was surprised to learn um, that you were, uh, your work is medical director and program manager for tsunami relief in Indonesia. Now, my ignorance is I see, I'm like, oh, that's really remarkable and admirable. And in my mind, I picture you going there for a month and cleaning up and, you know, <laughs> off you go. You were there for five years. Like, I mean, you did a lot over the course of 20 years. You did a lot, but the, you were in that part doing that work for over five years. So can you tell us a little bit about what you were doing there and what that experience was like for you? Yeah, well, I don't think most people ever plan their career to have a earthquake and tsunami hit the zone where you're working. And certainly none of us would have ever imagined something so horrible happening, the worst disaster of our generation at the time. And so it was a place where I had been working for already five years. It was experiencing a civil war. The civil war between the Achenese rebels and the Indonesian government had went on for about 35 years, one of the longest running wars in the world. So working there in the first five years, I was doing working with nonprofits, not um, NGOs and that type of thing, helping with education, learning and development, and then switching to more straight up community development type of work. So when the tsunami hit, there was like a lot, I mean, it was 
chaos, right? Of course, it was disaster relief. It was um, the UN was coming in. I was one of the people who was able to be a liaison with them because there weren't many foreigners who had lived in Aceh province prior to the tsunami happening. And suddenly we have these NGOs, the, all these big ones from all over the world coming in with flooding. And so the coordination level of that was really intense. And because the hotels had all been destroyed, there wasn't even places to stay. But we knew people and we had friends. So my husband was one of the first foreigners in and we went, he went to look for our friends, most of whom had miraculously survived, but there were some friends of ours that lived in the ground zero part where it was waves from on both sides and there's, it was just flat and there was nothing left. But it was an, an obviously an intense time, but if anybody who's listening who's done disaster relief, there is, you know, a period of time, depending on the level of disaster where it kind of levels out and there's more just this community development phase where you're really focused on rebuilding. So the first, I mean, the first solid year was just an intensity like I've never experienced for sure. Still a lot of earthquakes happening, you know, a lot of, you know, just such devastation. But so the initial phase was a lot of body removal, helping people find their loved ones. If you know much about Islam and the way they bury their loved ones, it, there's a significant reality for them that they're trying to bury that body within 24 hours. And the belief is that the body is experiencing the pain of whatever it's in. And so the body, the soul is so connected to the body and it can't be released into the afterlife until that body has a white shroud and is properly, you know, washed and buried. And so the torture of the living was just a level of intensity that's hard to describe. Um, so early on, our efforts were bringing in volunteers to help people find their loved ones and help bury them. And so there was an undertaker from the United States that came and um, we he brought white shrouds and we just tried our best to help find their loved ones because it was it was really hard to watch. But in the in all of that, there was medical side of things, which I helped coordinate. We brought in it's kind of all came full circle. I used to translate for this doctors growing up. And then here I was as an adult helping bring ones in to help us. And I got two Indonesian workers who had just kind of graduated with their public health degrees. They're amazing women that to this day have gone on to do incredible stuff. But we just did what we could. We would set up makeshift clinics. People donated medicine and vitamins. And we did some training on how to take vitamins. So don't give your kids the whole bottle because they're they're going to bleed from the nose, that kind of thing. Also just, you know, horrible things. A woman with many stitches in her eye on the 100 days after the tsunami, which was a significant marker for them. She'd lost all of her, I think it was like eight children and her husband, the only living relative was her brother and she was just catatonic basically. She got in the car and the only word I ever heard her say, even though her body was completely numb with no emotion. And she just said the word takut, which means afraid. But you wouldn't have known other than she said the word. I mean, her, her world had just been obliterated. And so, but we took her into a clinic with an American doctor. And when he kind of looked at her eye, he noticed all these splinters that had been in there because people went through this rubble and just were maimed and like people's clothes were who knows where. And this is Islamic law. I wore hijab, you know, we all did. And so, so it was just a horribly, just, uh, it's hard to describe the devastation people experience and the shame and the, the um, physical and emotional and spiritual pain. So also um, just helping that woman get help and get those splinters out of her eye. You know, she almost didn't even feel them because this the pain of losing her whole family was just the most intense thing. And so helping people get back on their feet took a while. 
and then we helped rebuild many homes that were retrofitted for earthquakes. We helped get water reclamation for the rain so they could have clean water, helped with macro business loans to help brick factories be rebuilt so they could build the homes. And then I um, helped translate for a trauma therapist to help the children process their trauma. And yeah, it was just, when you do disaster relief and community development like that, you wear a lot of hats. Yeah. So yeah. that was just one of the many hats I wore during that time. But yeah, by the time five years came, there it was different. I mean, it wasn't all, it never goes back to the way it was, but in some ways it was better. You know, the buildings that were rebuilt were mostly sturdier, but um, you don't replace a child. My best, one of my best friends lost her baby about 15 months old. And oh, you just, boy. you don't ever replace that. There's just no such thing as having another child and then it's all okay. So every year, December 26th, I think of Nana's baby who would have been, you know, a few months older than my oldest, who's going to college this year. And just, it's, I lament, I, I'm sad. It's just, you don't really ever get over it. You just learn to grieve in a healthy way and tell your story and live with a new normal. So yeah, that's kind of what that was. It was, that kind of work was not just a job. It was, yeah. it was a body and soul and mind. You, you give your full self in a situation like that. Um, you know, I was just thinking of uh, in, in Jersey, you know, especially families, Italian and Jewish families uh, from New York that I grew up with, one of the highest compliments you could give someone uh, a, a woman is uh, you're a tough broad. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of folks think that's not okay, but it really is. It's one of the highest kind. You're a tough broad, but wow, I take it as an honor then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you knew Ida Manuni and she called you a tough broad, that was like the highest honor. <laughs> uh, Ida's the woman who, who sort of raised me. Uh, my, my mother went to work right away. Uh, there's stories there, but I, in all seriousness, I, I did want, I'm glad and I'm grateful for you sharing some of your experience because you understand what difficult working and living conditions look like. You're no stranger to hostile conditions and impossible challenges right. of all sorts. I just, I bring it up because I read something that Saddleback said, uh, or the elder board said that just, man, I just, I wanted to drive down to Oast, Orange County and just start <laughs> kicking somebody in the teeth. I don't know. Um, okay. <laughs> New York style. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I bring that up because I'd like to talk about what you and your family went through at Echo Church, in particular, your experiences with Pastor Andy Wood. Now, let me just paint this picture real quick. Some may recognize the name Andy Wood. Um, after running Echo Church in Northern California, Andy was just named, uh, just a, a couple months ago, named the successor to Pastor Rick Warren at Saddleback Church. A lot of folks might uh, recognize the name Rick Warren. He is one of the most renowned pastors in the world, arguably. His book, The Purpose Driven Life, sold over 35 million copies. Uh, he did the invocation at Barack Obama's first inauguration ceremony. And Saddleback is one of the largest churches in the country. So for Andy to be named his successor, it is, to say the least, a really big deal. But there's more to this story that Andy, I've been alluding to it the, the whole time that Lori and I have been talking. There's a lot more to the story that Andy Rick Warren and the elders at Saddleback are doing everything they can to mute and silence. So with that as a little back background, can you tell us, Lori, about you and your husband Jason's experience when you came to work at Echo Church and under, past, uh, under Pastor Andy Wood? Yes, this is a story no one ever wants to tell. Like I said earlier, our brains prefer 
when there's cognitive dissonance to just choose the joy and choose the happiness and surely it'll all be okay. But as a person of faith, like I said, I've love the scriptures they are meaningful to me and i've grown up my whole life with them in multiple languages and i see all throughout the scriptures that we are supposed to bring darkness to light and if we love our brothers and sisters we wouldn't want them to stay in darkness either but we would want them to be set free because the truth sets us free so it is only in that vein that i even share this because it's not a comfortable thing to talk about for anyone yeah i would say that my initial experience of working at echo church both me and my husband was positive but i did see some red flags even early on that i kind of pushed away because i was new in the united states having just left singapore and come to this job still in jet lag when i was starting day one and you know, there were just some red flags that were showing signs of people being burnt out. And it turns out there's a strong culture of that and um, a lack of what it was pastoral care. People called pastors, but not in my mind, actually pastoring. And this, I grew up in the church around the world for pastors, pastor, and that was what you did. <laughs> but this was something altogether different. And I know a lot of people say, well, the church has turned into a business in some ways, and there's questions whether that's good or bad, but this was something even deeper and darker than that, because it was something I eventually would have labeled and, and at this point label as abusive. Yeah, there's just, my story's kind of out there and, and people have interviewed me about it, but the gist is after a year on staff, I was invited into the SLT, which is the strategic leadership team, and my husband was too, so our first year, on staff, even though I was associate campus pastor of the second largest campus, the Sunnyvale campus, and my husband was the missions and church planning pastor. Um, we weren't really invited into decision-making positions for the way the church ran or to give our opinions at all. We were some of the only people who had seminary degrees, but even that it was sort of like, well, seminary is not really a, a thing that's super valued. And, you know, we'd had 20 years of our own missionary experience in ministry and had helped plant a church in the 90s in San Francisco in this in the exact Bay Area where we are. Um, having grown up as children of people in ministry, we knew ministry. If there's anything we knew, we knew that. <laughs> but um, our, you know, we were not speaking into any of those decisions or even invited. So when we were invited, I had been in, you know, Southeast Asia wide strategic leadership team situations for many years and we were very collaborative we very much questioned and wanted each other's perspectives and opinions and if you've been to seminary that had its own weight of you know how did you your perspective on it so my assumption was the strategic leadership team was all of those words but it turns out that was wrong it was none of those words but i didn't know like when you're in sometimes a toxic system you're not understanding there's the, it's all in the wording that wording is carefully there for a reason. And I hadn't quite understood that yet. So uh, Pastor Andy came in the second or third meeting of that, which was July 2020. And everybody can picture what life was like at that point, <laughs> which here in Santa Clara County was very shut down. Um, but we were meeting at that point, socially distanced outdoors, six feet apart. So that was the nature of that meeting. And then Andy came in and said, basically we're going to reopen our campuses he used this illustration of driving two cars and that meant everything we were doing which most people i knew on staff were at the verge of burnout or just extremely exhausted 
homeschooling kids. We all know what that was like. Our kids here were homeschooled a year and a half online. And so in the Bay Area, both husband and wife tend to work. You have dual income households. We're the highest property value in the U.S. And so it's very difficult to make ends meet. And and so for the staff, it was there was never a moment where we pulled back once COVID hit. Our first meeting with Andy on Zoom was like, everybody better be working. And there was sort of this fear you'll get fired if you don't. And so it was just, it was not a sit back in our pajamas, relax kind of time for us. It was intense. We helped start something called Echo Compassion to help reach people in our community by giving them groceries and helping, you know, with, I set up a partnership with DoorDash as the development director for Echo Compassion, trying to get people meals and that it was intense. We were, I raised an entire team online sight unseen and got volunteers to coordinate other volunteers, like, you know, scaled teams that was from scratch while also being associate campus pastor and doing all of that pastoral stuff, which I was actually trying to do when people had loved ones that were sick with COVID or were in the hospital. I was trying to do pastoral care calls with them, but it, and homeschool my kids, like all those things. So when he said, we're going to do something more than what we're doing for me, my perspective, having been a leader of global teams all around the world was, well, something's got to give. So if we're doing something else, then therefore we had to pull back. But there was never, so that I just really had a question, honestly, just an honest question, a curious question, an innocent question. You know, how is it possible for basically to drive two cars the way you're saying? And (laughs) yeah, I just- Innocent enough, right? Yeah, the metaphor doesn't even make sense. How do you drive two cars? But I felt his anger toward me for the first time. And I'd seen him be angry at other people or talk about them. And he had nicknames for people on staff that he would say sort of behind the curtain and, you know, small group situations or whatever. And I knew that, you know, he had this level of um, not liking people and saying it pretty straightforwardly in different circles. And I think non-consciously, I didn't want to be that person. So I just really, now I know is the the fawn response to trauma, which I think a lot of people on staff had, where you just, you become perfect. You want to be a people pleaser. You want to cross every T and dot every I because you're afraid he'll say that about you or to you or fire you or make you so miserable you'll quit, that kind of thing. So it was a high attrition rate on staff I'd already noticed in just that year of working there. Yeah. Um, a lot of turnover. And so basically... I, I just asked the question and he got angry and basically I didn't know what to do at that point, except when I saw him later, the next chance I had, we were hanging out with his family and I apologized and he said, we will not talk about this in front of my family. And it was just a few days later. So it was, it was clear he was still angry. He had gone to my boss after the meeting itself and said, what was Lori trying to do in there? So clearly he was upset and then remained upset maybe to this day. I, I've apologized several times just for asking that question, which now I'm like, why did I, I've had people say, why did you apologize for asking a question? Yeah. Which is a good question, but that was the culture. You weren't, I didn't realize you weren't allowed to question, which is a sign of a very toxic environment. A lot of other things unfolded from there and that's in my, you know, the articles you can read, but it basically ended up in, three different interrogation meetings in his office, just very powered by fear, uncomfortable. I didn't feel comfortable really expressing myself completely. And it was a lot of um, disrespect and power dynamics. He would call me names sometimes in those meetings. And and then the executive pastor at one point, because I was trying to just quit, this wasn't working. And the executive pastor 
Felipe Santos called and said, hey, just so you know, Andy sometimes has people on staff that he can't be around because he's upset with them for sometimes a solid year. So if you just get in a different role, you can get away from him and that'll protect you and this will all be fine. Which I said, well, why don't we just get Andy healthy? He seems really unhealthy. But then Felipe said, well, you just don't understand how it works. But I said, well, it seems like his personality is in everything. This entire church that he planted is all around his preferences and personality. And we're not allowed to do anything that doesn't sound like him. We have to talk like him and act like him. But if he's not healthy, none of us can be healthy. But Felipe just said, no, you don't understand our culture. That's not how it works. And so I thought, well, I guess best case scenario is I just do this other role. It's an outreach pastor role and I'll be away from Andy. And then I didn't hear anything for a couple of months at all because my boss was trying to leave because there's a lot of turnover. And then suddenly two days before Christmas, I was ambushed in a meeting, surprise meeting where I was meeting with Andy and Felipe in Andy's office, which was really scary because Felipe had told me he would keep me away from Andy and suddenly he's putting me in his office with him. So instead of feeling protected, now I was being put in the same office with the man who's upset with me. And so that was just a very intense experience with a rapid fire interrogation. And, you know, Julie Royce has sort of covered that bit in her article. But yeah, I had um, basically an out of body experience from that trauma. Now they're claiming they were super gentle and they never, you know, did anything. It's just that I'm sensitive, which people laugh because if anybody's known me throughout my life, that has never been a word that anyone's used to describe me. <laughs> So more along the lines of tough broad. So but I think that just, yeah. Um, but I think that what that tells us is that even really strong people like me in a position where you've been gaslit, where people control your salary, where there's religion mixed with power, and you've been groomed over more than a year and the entire staff and church around you has been groomed to see a good side of this person. And suddenly you're seeing a really dark side behind the curtain it's really scary and you don't know how you'll react in that situation but i've never been in anything like that in my life but now i've done a lot of therapy and i'm doing much better and able to speak out and share because i know that i'm not the only one many other victims have come before and after the article was released but many either have ndas or are just too afraid to speak so some have moved all across the united states to get away and for seven years just prayed and they read my story and said oh i'm not the only one and so i'm and even from his previous church in texas i've had a couple of stories reach out from 15 years ago and so these aren't stories that are mine to share but i i knew that i wasn't the only one my husband has his own story to share too of his own abuse that he experienced with them but it felt like to bring this darkness to light was the right thing to do once i got to a place where i could heal and when the saddleback story came out it was i couldn't keep on my conscience that twenty thousand other people could experience anything like this um, or even one it's just unacceptable for anybody to go through what me and my family have had to go through and i know many others who i'm walking alongside that are victims processing it now too so we'll we'll definitely link to the julie roy's articles she's a great investigative journalist uh, so we'll link to those articles in the show notes. You mentioned NDA. Um, mm -hmm. You guys decided not to sign the NDA. Could you share a little bit about that experience? But also more broadly, mm -hmm. when I heard NDA, like a church with an NDA, you're not like a software company that has to keep <laughs> your you know, programs uh, secret or, or uh, proprietary. Like NDA, like it didn't make sense to me. 
Yes. No, I mean, it's not like Jesus rising from the dead is a secret. I'm not sure what we're trying to keep secret out there like that is something we don't have. I work in business now in a tech startup. Of course, an NDA makes sense there. You don't want you know, your particular tech secrets to be leaked, but the church is a completely different situation. I just want to come out very strongly and say there is no church that should be giving an NDA under any circumstances. Shortly after we were offered our NDA tied to severance, which both of us did not sign, the Church of England banned all NDAs altogether last year, not long after that. And so highly applaud that move and hope more denominations and churches will follow suit. And when I say that, I don't mean then call it something else because the reality is even at Echo Church, they did not call it an NDA, just like the strategic leadership team was also a misnomer. So watch the wording because it's sometimes these clauses, these non-disparagement clauses. So when we were offered this, basically the circumstances were my husband in February, February 25th, 2021, went to Felipe Santos and said, hey, that meeting you had with Lori in December was abusive and they fired us. I wasn't even in the conversation and I got basically fired. And so a few days later, we were invited to a meeting with an NDA tied to severance. And when they put the document in front of us, I had read the book, A Church Called Toe by Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger. Please check it out. Everyone should read it if you care about the church. Um, but I had seen this playbook starting to play out in front of me. And I, I said, oh, is that an NDA? And he said, no. And then Jason said, well, does this mean if we sign this, then we couldn't share our story? about the abuse if other people come forward and have their stories about abuse. And Felipe said, well, we could sue you, but we won't sue, but you could just sign it. And we said, well, no, that's not possible for us to not share our story. We won't sign any document that says we can't share our story. And so my husband said, Ravi Zachariah's situation was sort of really going on at the time. You know, this is March, early March, 2021. And Jason said, we know that these stories that are coming out, we can't, we can't do that. We don't want ever there to be a situation where Andy, we have covered for him and we can't help him. We love him. And so he's definitely not that, but he, we don't want to pave a path where we cover up stories. That's a, just a terrible practice for the church to do. And then Felipe started to get really angry about that. It was clear we were not going with their playbook at this point. And I, they had done this probably more than once. And we were stepping outside of that. And I think there was probably no concept that you have a husband and a wife and three kids who've just recently left Singapore a year and a half before it's COVID. Kids are in online school. We're mostly still shut down. The, the ability to get jobs after that was pretty hard to comprehend. And they just probably thought there's no way they won't sign this NDA. It's both of them. They have zero income if they say no. And we just couldn't do it. And I mean, I think that the nature of having lived the ways that we've lived, we aren't greedy people. We've never been going into, our parents didn't go into any kind of career to make money. It was to make a difference. And so we've lived in pretty hard circumstances that living in Aceh province in Sumatra was not easy pre-tsunami or post-tsunami. That entire 10 years was a really hard gig. We were not there for glory, celebrity. It was not a glamorous position at all. So I think that they'd probably not had that experience before with people who we just had such a strong faith that God would take care of us. My Venezuelan families that I grew up around taught me this. People would give their jewelry in the offering plate when I was growing up and be starving. 
And so when people, when I was offered an NDA tied to severance, and let's just be honest, the severance was not a huge amount of money because the church was very much not paying people according to what is normal for the Bay Area. So we, we contacted um, Dr. Scott McKnight. He put us in contact with Baj Chavijan, who's a lawyer. He works with Grace Ministries. A lot of people know him. And he looked at the document and said, oh, this is, they're lying in the document. It says they're being generous to your family. And this, this severance wouldn't be generous for Florida and you're in the Bay Area. And he said, you wouldn't be able to share your story if you sign it. But he's like, I can't give you advice. If you feel like you have to, you have to. But he's like, I, you know, if you, if there's any way you can't sign it, you know, try to do that. And so we just looked at each other and we're like, we can't, we can't do it. And so they came back with a second version of the doc document the next day, since we wouldn't sign the original one page less, but basically the same thing. That's the one that Boz looked at. And then, um, we also didn't sign that one and things just got really kind of crazy. It felt like we were dealing with the mafia at times. It was just scary. There was a lot of them texting, uh, Andy texting our friends, telling them to text us things, which we could tell because our friends didn't talk like that. It was very much like, oh. this is Andy talking through our friend and telling us, don't go to church, don't show up at church and just kind of really locking us out and telling us not to share and not to say anything, which we hadn't signed an NDA, but we were trying to be above reproach even in that, just to be like, this is the church these two you know, families had helped plant. Turns out there was a third family that had kind of been erased from the picture because, and they also have NDAs. But there's just a long history of this that we started to realize in the aftermath of it all. And it's been extremely painful to walk through as a family. We've all, you know, I didn't have little babies when this happened. I had teenagers that were serving in the students. My daughter was singing in the worship band for students and they had, these were their only friends and their only leaders and they were walking through COVID and being, you know, in America and working through culture shock. And these were the people they knew. And then we lost all of it as a family. So it, it was, it was a significant thing to not sign and just take the money, but out of love for our brother, Andy and Felipe, we did not want to tuck our tail and leave. We wanted to say, look, this is wrong. And if it takes two of us standing together, we can be stronger but we can't, we can't cover this up for you. If we love you, we need to say, don't do this to people. It's, it's not okay. Yeah. So it, it's important to note going, you know, with Andy um, talking about his, his being hired at Saddleback that the elder board there did an internal investigation and determined quote unquote, there was no pattern of abuse and further explained that disappointment and hurt are not the same as abuse. So a couple things here. Number one <laughs> is uh, Nathan McDowell and Rose is, you know, we're the best in class in, a, in our industry as headhunters, executive search, uh, executive search firm. It is unfathomable. If something comes up on a candidate that we placed, we are not doing that internal investigation. And Saddleback had the search firm that placed Andy there, do its own investigation. Oh, no, he's good. We're good. We're good. And then to, <laughs> and then to sorry, the, the jersey's coming out in me. But then to, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> to go ahead and like start victim blaming. Like mm -hmm. in, in the most patronizing way you could disappointment and hurt are not the same as I, I talk, that that's where I just like uh, some throats are getting punched right now. Sorry. <laughs> this is not very Christian of me. You, you've been much better at uh, <laughs> expressing yourself in, a, in an exemplary fashion than I am. Okay. There's a larger issue that I, that I would like to explore. Can you, can you help us understand when normal healthy conflict 
turns into an abusive situation, uh, specifically spiritual abuse. Sure. And once again, anybody that has known me throughout my life is not going to say that I shy away from conflict. I'm definitely not one of those people that moves toward it. I don't think most people do, but I, I've grown up around really strong cultures and personalities. People who know Venezuelans would describe them as Italians. Like, you know, you have a car accident and hands are flying and people are like, you know, it's just, it's very, you know, I'm not a very emotional person, but I, I've been around a lot of that and I know how to navigate those situations. I worked for 20 years. A lot of my community development work was with very devout Muslims in an area, especially 10 years in Aceh province, which was Sharia law. I mean, I had very strong discourse and disagreement around things that are most dear to me, such as that I believe Jesus died on a cross and rose from the dead. And this was not an opinion that my Muslim friends to this day shared. I had to learn, and I would say I'm very skilled because I've had to hone that skill over many years of how to have a conversation around my faith disagreement theology with people that I care about or people I barely know. And I've talked, I've spoken with imams who are basically have my same degree, but the Muslim version of it, you know? And so I, I have, my career has been full of these conversations with people from many different religions. I grew up in international school where I had a friend that one day tried to pit me against an atheist at our locker. I think he was a, a Jewish friend and he was like, Hey, let's see how it goes between the Christian and the atheist. Let's like put this little bomb out there and see if they fight. <laughs> right. <laughs> which was yeah. so funny, Yeah, which we didn't because we we're good friends, but we, I've, I've grown up with discourse. It's a, it's a value of my life. I am not easily, disappointed, angry, shying away from conflict, like they painted me and all of the victims that shared as that way. And we're all not a monolith, by the way. So, but yes, uh, where it goes from healthy conflict to abuse, especially spiritual abuses, I think that if you're not acknowledging the power dynamics of what happened in my December meeting, which was the culmination of many meetings when I'd been promised to be pulled away and protected from this man who had what feels like an OCD level of contempt regularly of different people on staff. And since then, I've heard many stories of those people who he had that sort of inability to be around without being upset at them. I just was the person of interest at the time. But when you're supposed to be away from that person and suddenly you're brought into their office and you don't, you don't recognize the power dynamics of these are not even my bosses. This is my boss's boss and my boss's boss's boss. And you bring me in a couple of days before the busiest time of year, Christmas, to an ambush me in a meeting where I have no representative to help me. There's nobody from HR sitting with me. Two men flank me on both sides and interrogate me for a solid hour. The name of the meeting was your 2021 role, which we never discussed. It was all an attack on my character. And the worst things they could bring up were that I was frustrated about COVID and that apparently they thought I was frustrated about women and had told Pastor Lucille to speak up more. Those felt like the two worst things I had done, but the, the dynamic of that was as if I felt like I was being crucified and brought on trial and they had called witnesses and I had no, I didn't even know what was happening. So that's not healthy, number one. It's also hostile work environment and harassment. 
but it's definitely when you have a spiritual relationship and these are your pastors and they say they're their pastors and there's this theology around pastor andy that he has this level of spiritual authority where god speaks to him and gives him dreams and he you know will say i had a dream therefore we should merge with this church and that kind of conversation is kind of a regular thing going on and then suddenly you think you're going to get fired a couple of days before christmas you know it, it, it's just the power dynamics of that it's it's intense so it wouldn't be appropriate for the business world i've been in the business world all this year we would not do those types of things hr has a lot of rules and regulations it's just that's not okay but when you add the spiritual nature to that like i cannot that's the part that was the most painful and most of the victims i know would say that spiritual nature was what was so hard because they're twisting verses in, in the bible they're twisting spiritual concepts to make you seem like you did something horribly wrong against this church and against this pastor and something's really wrong with you for telling pastor lucille to speak up more that type of thing which felt to me like a good thing but they twisted into something really awful and then they had a and this is a sort of dave ramsey thing that's become i didn't really understand it at the time but when i came on staff i was told we you would get fired for gossiping, which was seemed really extreme. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then in that meeting, it was clear they had been talking about me to a lot of other, other people. And I'd been quite careful to not do that. And suddenly I realized, oh, the rules don't apply to them. So I think the nature of that is is also very abusive to just get away with breaking all the rules that you yourself set and to use that as a weapon against somebody in a in your office, an ambush meeting without even telling, I mean, I, the, the nature of the meeting was also a lie in itself. Your 2020 run roll. I had a notebook out ready to take notes on my new role that I've been waiting for two months to find out what I was going to be doing. And just a lot of secrecy and power dynamics around that, that um, were unacknowledged and very abusive. And then I think just to minimize it, to say, oh, we were super gentle. The other thing is apparently I was being videoed in that meeting and many other meetings I didn't know. They would never asked me um, would you like to be recorded? Is it okay if we record you? I didn't know I was being recorded and they've shown those. I don't know what they've shown because they've not released it to me and they, Julie Roy's asked for it and they didn't release it to her, but Saddleback Elders I read in the news had seen it. I've heard of people at Echo Church that have seen videos of me that I was not aware I was being recorded. So that's like a level of complex trauma that's ongoing where you know people are still watching you. So um, yeah, had to work through that and in, in therapy too, but I'm a tough broad, so I'm gonna <laughs> That's <pay>. right. <laughs> That's right. Um, it's, I was also surprised. So there's a level of brazenness that I think Andy almost uh, celebrates a certain style. Uh, so I was really surprised. He had a 2021 conference on leadership, and he had Dr Mark Driscoll as mm -hmm. uh, on stage on this co yep. conference on leadership. Now, for those who don't know, Mark Driscoll, there's um. There's a really helpful, informative, deep dive of a podcast called, uh, I think it's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And if you could imagine, I think we talked about this. I imagine the Tom Cruise character in Magnolia, you know, the the he, he's like a, a personal coach, uh, a life coach who gives these seminars, but his, his style is like toxic masculinity on steroids. So... <laughs> That's the style of pastor leadership that Mark Driscoll championed, and it was it ultimately led to the downfall of this huge, huge church in the Northwest. And that's the guy that 
that Andy had uh, at Echo Church's conference on leadership. So, yeah, this is um, we could go quite a bit longer about this, but I'm I'm really grateful for your willingness to share this. It takes so much takes so much clarity and wisdom and just level-headedness, being able to think clearly um, and think virtuously under demanding situations to simply do the, the act of not signing that NDA. And I don't, I, I can't sit here and judge anyone who has signed that document, uh, but I really just applaud you for uh, displaying that level of integrity uh, and courage and sacrifice, frankly. So, and, and also just in sharing your your story. And by the way, I, I, I get the spirit that I get from you in having you know hung out with you and talked to you a few times, isn't one of like, it's not like you want to get back at anybody. It's it's a it's a heart of like, this is this is a problem, and and we need to address the problem earnestly and honestly and sensitively and. You know, and I'd hate for somebody else to have to go through this kind of a thing. So, yeah, it it's it grieves me how the the reaction that I'm seeing at Saddleback, uh, and it grieves me that this has all taken place. It grieves me that this is uh, it seems like it's almost like a cultural issue. It's not, you know, isolated to one individual. So, after having gone through all this, how are you and Jason and and your kids doing now? Yeah, I think that, you know, <laughs> I'm the kind of person that when it first happened, I was like, well, I want to be over this in a month tops, you know, <laughs> so yeah. that was not realistic. And um, I should have known better because I did, you know, help translate for a trauma therapist years ago in the tsunami. But so I'd say it's like onion layers. You can't unpack it all at once because that's not how the brain processes trauma. So just, you know, I think some of the I re what I really wish Saddleback had done in there, what I put in quotes, investigation, because as we said, it was not an investigation. Even if Gail, who seemed to be a wonderful person, had been trained with the CIA, I was shocked at the level of lack of actually digging. And I guess when you're investigating yourself, then maybe you're not motivated. But most of the, I mean, I wasn't reached out to for quite a period of time. Julie always put that out there too. And then I was giving her information to others and saying, hey, if you want to tell your story, I was doing a lot of her work for her. I'd be like, hey, but most people didn't want to share because they, first of all, realized it was a sham. But some people at great personal risk shared and worse stories than mine, which are not mine to share. But to say that it wasn't abusive when, you know, clearly Echo has not paid for any of our therapy. My therapy has been paid for by another Southern Baptist church who are anonymous, but they're a wonderful church. And it's not all right. Like I said, it's not all bad out there, right? Yeah. But um, but we have walked through therapy. It, you don't uncover it in a day because your brain can't process all of it at once. Especially my husband and I were diagnosed with complex PTSD because it was ongoing. It wasn't one event for either one of us. It was the oxygen that we were breathing, and it was happening multiple times and regularly. And so, um, but yeah, we're doing a lot better. We're able to help others. I'm not gonna say I'm 100 percent healed because when the saddleback announcement happened you know there are three women that i know personally on staff 
who started having panic attacks around Andy Wood and had gotten better. But then when the Saddleback announcement happened, they all three started having panic attacks again. So it does, the body keeps the score, it's there. So we do our work, I do my DBT work, even to, you know, every day right in the season, I've been a little more intense with it. Um, but it's a, it'll be a chapter in my book one day, it won't be the whole book. You know, it's one part of what happened to me. It's not what defines me or my family, but certainly the suffering has been an opportunity to re understand God being a refuge, a strong tower, a rock, a deliverer, the Ezer, which is used to describe God as that warrior help that is used to describe Eve at creation, that warrior help that comes alongside. Um, that's where our help comes from is the Lord. And even though the mountains will fall into the sea and the earth gives way, we know that God is our help. And so that's been our, our refuge. The Psalms have meant a great deal to me in this season. Highly recommend them to anybody going through something like this. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know Yiddish? I know you know six languages. Do you speak any Yiddish? I do not, but I'd like to learn. <laughs> chutzpah. So, you know, chutzpah. that's, that's, you, you have chutzpah. That's uh, oh, a good thing. Oh, I like thing. it. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, there, I have so many more questions for you, but I know we have uh, a short amount of time left. So do you have any questions for me? Yeah. You know, I was thinking about that and you were, um, you were talking about how you're in Southern California. I know Saddleback is a big presence, you know, for a lot of people around the world, but especially where you are. And so, yeah, I think there's people processing. I've been reached out to some people at Saddleback saying they're concerned. What should they do? I don't really have time to follow up on everybody that reaches out to me right now, because that's just the nature of this. There's a lot of people hurting and concerned about that situation. But, you know, as you look at a church like Saddleback from your vantage point, who did a quote unquote investigation where they didn't really reach out to all the former staff at all and all the victims and also minimized it by saying people were all disgruntled or conflict or whatever and then used the i guess same lawyers that matt chandler at the village church had used to cover up an abuse there so just some serious red flags they didn't use grace ministries would have been a great choice they didn't use a third party what um i guess i would want to know what would you say to somebody who might be listening from saddleback right now who might want to know why this is such a big deal and why can't we just move on and love this family and let them be the pastor? You know, it's interesting. I, I am in Southern California, but I'm about an hour, hour and a half north of where Saddleback is. I happen to live in Santa Clarita Valley, which is where John MacArthur's university is, uh, <laughs> uh, Matt, the master's university. So we have a subculture of a different sort, a lot of similarities there. Uh, a lot of sort of authoritarian tendencies, uh, definitely patriarchal tendencies. And a lot of this stuff, frankly, I'm learning myself. Yeah. I'm learning to name it. And I'm also with great pain trying to identify those tendencies in myself. Like mm -hmm. as much as it pains me to say how I raised my kids. You know, we were going mm -hmm. to Grace Baptist Church, which started out as, you know, it a lot of the churches around here are like some direct descendant of Johnny Mac, you know, or yeah. Johnny Mac planted churches or one of his students came and split off from another church. And so I would say that, you know, we have to reckon with this. I would say that we have the sort of reflexive tendency to think that the ministry is so important that no, 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 no. So this needs to go away because the ministry work is so important. But no, 
That is the ministry work. We have to deal with this. We can't we can't hire a PR firm and and pretend no it's all okay because we need to project this image because we're bringing people to the Lord we're saving you know we did an altar call and and you know saved you know whatever however many souls you know that just that's not the work that's not that's not tikkun olam that's not ministry that's PR work I'm not being very articulate right now but it's I guess I have to continue working it out. The best I could say is that it is difficult work. It's heart-wrenching work. It's it's sometimes gruesome work. But I haven't been effective at large-scale change. I haven't been effective at even convincing a room full of people um, that we need to reckon with this and grapple with the hard stuff um, and that we need to recognize our colonialist tendencies, um, our chauvinistic tendencies, um, because it all just looks ugly. You know, it all just looks like I want to throw throw those rocks, you know. But I think I have been more effective at one conversation with one person at a time yeah. and doing this work shoulder to shoulder mm-hmm. as opposed to nose to nose and going through it together. And also, again, just really importantly, recognizing my own complicity and being earnest about that, not as like someone to take a flagellum to myself or anything like that, but like right. just being honest and earnest about it. So I don't know, does that sort of answer your question? <laughs> I resonate. Yes. I find that systems, I think it's Diane Landberg says, you're not called to change the entire system by yourself. You can't, but sometimes you take a step out of it because you are complicit and recognizing your own complicity. And then also you know, recognizing, I think in this evangelical industrial complex, there's a push toward narcissism. You know, Chuck DeGroat talks about that and when narcissism comes to church, but these systems are designed for narcissists to come in or to create a narcissist if they don't already exist. And so there is a tendency to say, oh, I can stay, I can change this whole system, which is a bit of a narcissistic thing to say, <laughs> because it's this is a big system. So I think that it's it's not easy answers. I'm not saying, I'm not judging people. I've not always made this decision I made one day and then felt it was a good one the next, you know? And so like, we're all in process here, but what we don't wanna do is ha- have it be a den of thieves. Jesus flipped tables over that. It's a house of prayer for all nations. And if you're harboring somebody who's stealing people's souls or stealing from them in some way, their joy, you know, devouring sheep behind the curtain and being a wolf dressed in sheep's clothings or pretending to be a shepherd. I'm not shepherds are sheep too. I get, I get mixed up in all these metaphors. <laughs> the reality is we do not want to harbor abuse and yeah. we don't want to cover it up and shame on us. If we do, there's a narrative that going around that say that says, and actually Andy and Felipe said this to my husband in our last meeting, which was very abusive after we'd already been fired. A lot of gaslighting telling us we were emotional when we were so calm and collected and being very factual. And they kept saying, you're so emotional. <laughs> we weren't. Yeah. But um, in that process, they would say, we're trying to help protect the church. And we were thinking, but aren't we the church? How did we suddenly not become the church in this scenario? So I just wanted to be very careful about that. Andy told some people who questioned him after we left, because a lot of people questioned him and then ended up leaving the church. They were dissatisfied with the way that was handled. You're not allowed to question really and get away with that. And so 
he said to some people, well, we're not going to get grace ministries because they're on the side of the victim, not the church, which I responded. But I thought the victim was the church. When did the victim not become the church? So I think there's some red flags there. It's an empire builder. It's a person who thinks they own something. There's a level of narcissism, whatever that is. It's not okay to say this is your church. If that's the concept, that's not Jesus. We're not yeah. worshiping Jesus. So that would just... Ask people to stay curious along with what you're saying. Think through it. I think it's going back to your sociological lenses that that you look through sometimes. There is this tendency to get caught up in culture war mentality uh, yeah. that we can't possibly be the bad guys or even we need to be above reproach. Even if we're reproachable, we need to be or look above reproach because we know that there's a war going on and they're mm -hmm. trying to, um, you know, Whatever, whatever, whoever the perceived enemy is in this um, illusion of a culture war, that justifies all kinds of use of weaponry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, but that's a, again, that's a whole other. Yeah. That's basically your whole podcast. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. One last thing I wanted to say is there's a lot of narrative I heard in the aftermath of this from Andy and Felipe themselves, um, but also from others like, let's don't bring this too public because we don't want to hurt the church. My response as somebody who has many friends outside of the church, I mean, for my whole life, I've not only been friends with people from church. They know. Yeah. Are you kidding me? This yeah. is not a secret. They know. They read the news. Yeah. They see it. What they want us to do as Christians is to stand up for justice, to stand up for the oppressed, to follow Jesus. If we could actually follow Jesus and be on the side of the oppressed and listen to the marginalized, the women at the well to ask questions and sit there and listen, they would think differently about us. We're not letting any cat out of the bag here. They know. So yeah. that whole narrative, I don't, I don't follow it. So hopefully people listening that are worried that we're hurting the church in this conversation can think a little more deeply about that. I appreciate that. I appreciate so much of what we talked about today. And I know I've already gone over time, so <laughs> it's okay. let's, uh, let's get you off here. Um, how can we find you? We're, where can we find your awesome podcast, A World of Difference, and all the great work that you're doing? Thank you. Yeah, it's been an honor to be here with you, Corey, today. I am at lauriadamsbrown.com, so you can find me there. L-O-R-I, by the way, and I'll yes. share that in the Okay, sure. Yeah, L-O-R-I, Adams Brown. It has a hyphen, but not on the, not on the um, website. And I'm on LinkedIn. That's probably one of the best ways to connect with me. My podcast is A World of Difference. It's pretty much everywhere you can find your podcasts. I'd love for you to listen and engage. The whole point of the podcast is to bring a diversity of voices around the table to help us solve these problems. No one person has all that it takes to solve some of our biggest issues in our world today, including the one we discussed today. Yeah. I love perspectives. Yeah. It's always great talking to you, Lori. And um, hey, by the way, so I'm going to be driving up north sometime in the next month or so. So we'll have to you know, maybe get, get more of us to, I think it'll be, I'll be solo that time, but, okay. um, you know, Jason, whoever, however many of your kids want to come, you know, yeah. we'll do another tie or whatever. I'll oh. let you guys choose that time. So, oh no, my husband grew up in Thailand and our oldest, it was born in Chiang Mai, Thailand. We were always up for Thai food. So we awesome. can do that again. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thanks again. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcast and tell a friend about TPNR. We're easier to recommend than ever. It's politicsandreligion.us, politicsandreligion.us. And you support our program through Patreon at patreon.com slash politicsandreligion. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect. 
and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the and spelled out, A-N-D. Politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at TP and R pod. You know, TP and R pod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.